Welcome back to Hashtag Single with Jeanette Bonner. I am not a relationship expert or sex therapist. I'm just a regular New York City woman navigating the world as a single, independent feminist. Hashtag Single is about having honest conversations with other singles in today's device-obsessed culture. So I hope you'll join me on this interesting, challenging, and complex journey as we navigate the ins and outs of singledom. Welcome back to Hashtag Single. I am your host, Jeanette Bonner. We have on the podcast today a very special guest. I'm very excited. Renowned psychologist and author of brand new book, Taking Sexy Back, Dr. Alexandra H. Solomon. Dr. Alexandra Solomon is on faculty at the Weinberg College of Arts and Sciences and the School of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern University. She's a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern University and is on faculty at the Omega Institute. She maintains a psychotherapy practice for individual adults and couples, teaches and trains marriage and family therapy graduate students, and teaches the internationally renowned undergraduate course, Building Loving and Lasting Relationships, semicolon, Marriage 101, which I've heard actually (laughs) fills up in a matter of hours at Northwestern. NBD. Uh, Dr. Solomon is a highly sought after speaker who is frequently asked to talk about love, sex, and marriage for media outlets like O, The Oprah Magazine, The Atlantic, Vogue, NPR, and Scientific American. She's an international speaker and teacher whose work has been featured on five different continents. My goodness. Dr. Solomon, thank you so much for being on Hashtag Single with me today. Thank you so much for having me on. She is calling in from Chicago. So the sound is going to sound a little different to you guys that are listening. Um, but thank you so much for taking a, a moment out of your busy schedule to um, to join me virtually here in New York City. Um, first of all, I love your book. And I think that the work you're doing helping women to reclaim their sexuality as a thing of value and beauty is just extraordinary. So thank you for that. Um, I also want to say that I follow you on Instagram (laughs) and um, I'm always so inspired by your empowering messages about love and dating and self-worth, self-worth. But I was super excited to learn that a lot of your new book is centered on calling out and dismantling patriarchal ideas around sex and connection, which uh, for those of you just tuning into this podcast is literally one of my favorite things to talk about. So (laughs) I am so glad we get to dish about love and sex in a feminist forward way. Oh, me too. Let's just uh, let's just dive in from the top. Uh, For those of us not yet familiar with your work or your book What does taking sexy back mean exactly? Right. So the place that we start with this book is um, sort of with a question like, where is your sexual self located? Like, where does that part of you live? Mm. And I think that the nature of living in a patriarchy is it oftentimes feels like a woman's sexuality lives everywhere but inside of herself, right? We see this with just how free the world feels to comment on all aspects of women's sexuality, women's bodies, what women are doing or not doing with their bodies. And that comes with us like into 
to the most sacred of spaces, our bedrooms, our intimate partnerships, um, our relationship with ourselves. And so we start by taking this word sexy, which is kind of this like loaded word and definitely worthy of a woman journaling about like, okay, what is your relationship with this word sexy? You know, and kind of like unpacking, like what are the stories that you carry about that word? And what we're doing is we're taking it from a question because it oftentimes is this adjective. It's like a question, like, am I sexy? Do I get to be sexy? Um, In whose eyes? Am I sexy? Like, what are the risks mm-hmm. and benefits of being perceived as sexy? And we're turning it into a noun. Like, it is your sexy. So, the book is basically couples therapy between a woman and her sexy. And her sexy is her sexual self, her erotic self. And moving through a process of like quieting everybody else's opinions and views and really starting to listen from the inside to like, what does that part of you want to say? What is it longing for? What is it curious about? What information does it still need in order to understand, you know, the world of the erotic? So that's what we're, that's what we're doing. We're just taking, taking it back. That's, I mean, I think that's awesome. Obviously not for nothing. I think there's probably the allusion to like the very famous Justin Timberlake song probably gets you a little bit of like attention on the internet. Um, I'm sure I'm not the first person to be like, Oh yeah, that's from like, it's sort of a double meaning if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. uh, Right. In the book, you, you make a point to differentiate between what you refer to as like outside in sexuality, um, like focusing on what others expect of you versus inside out sexuality, which is cultivating a sexuality that feels authentic and aligned to you. Where, mm-hmm. where do you think this disconnect comes from? I think it comes from, um, you know, the, it's like this perfect storm of, um, a patriarchal system, right. In which, um, women's bodies, you know, in which all differences, differences of any kind are rather than differences being celebrated, there's this layer of power and all differences become hierarchies. So I think in part, mm-hmm. you know, this whole idea of like, ownership um, and sovereignty and autonomy are really um, central to a patriarchy's ability, to the ability to kind of have um, powerful and powerless people, you know, so I think that's kind of the original space of it. Um, And then when you like add to that really crappy sex education that you know, for those who grew up in Northern Europe, they probably had really some seriously high quality sex education that begins at an early age and um, starts with teaching, you know, four, five and six year olds that their bodies are their own. But one of the pieces of research we did for this book was really looking at the American sex education system. And it's pretty horrifying um, ways in which, you know, that pairing of sex and risk, sex and danger, sex and sin, sex and worth um, become, it's just like really early imprinting that goes towards women, especially, I mean, I think that, I think that men are also loaded up with really, really gnarly messages around their sexuality. So Mm. men don't get off scot-free in this. I mean, patriarchy hurts all of us, I believe. Um, but all of these forces sort of converge for a woman to feel like, like I'll have a, you know, I'll be giving a workshop and somebody's hand will go up and they'll say like, uh, is it okay? Like at what point is it okay to sleep with a new partner? Like, can I do it on the first date? Do I have to wait till the third date? Are they like just asking that. permission? Yeah. But they're just asking for like, what, what are the rules? Like, what, what do you think? Rules? What do I do? So yeah. that question, right. That in, embedded in that question is this idea. It's not my decision. Someone's going to tell me. Well, just the fact that there's like rules in the first place, like who's making them. 
You right. know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. where, where do we even have in our brains the idea that there needs to be rules about how you use your body? Right. That's right. But that, but they're, they're certainly, we've gotten the message, right? That's the whole nature of yeah, slut shaming yeah. is this idea that if you do it too soon, you're a slut. If you wait too long, you're a prude. If you know, it's just this whole, whenever we get in those binaries of like too soon and too long, we know our story is too thin, but yeah. it certainly feels like, um, that we're like chasing after this, like what would be just about right around our sexuality. I love that. I, yeah. One of my takeaways when I was reading your book was like how, like sex ed in middle school and how sex is introduced as a form of consequences. Like Mm -hmm. if you do this, B, like if you do A, B will happen. And, you know, coming from sort of a, a warning of don't do this as opposed to talking about pleasure and like the positives Mm -hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, I would never, ever like say that we shouldn't be talking about you know, negative consequences because certainly there are risks associated with sex, right? Like, so it's not to deny that. No, of course But not. it is just to say that that's not a full enough story. And it's so interesting when we, when we look at, when we look at a sex ed curriculum, there's what's in there. And then what that highlights is like, what's not in there. What are the things we're not talking about? Mm-hmm, and the things mm-hmm. we're not talking about oftentimes are inclusivity, right? So LGBT totally. teens, like very, very few of them have sex ed that is inclusive of their yeah. sexuality or even showing their relationships in positive light. Um, masturbation certainly is never in there. Never, yeah. Like a, a basic anatomy, like we'll maybe see a diagram of the internal female genitalia, but we're not showing external female genitalia oftentimes in um, sex ed, which means that what we're not talking about is the clitoris. And so it's like, what are we so afraid of talking about the clitoris? That's like a four letter word in school. That's right. I mean, it literally actually is a four letter word, but I mean, the full thing. call it the clit. Yeah. No, I mean, that was like one of those words that you hushed in the locker room. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I heard about this thing. It's called the clit. Uh-huh, <laughs> you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. and like, I don't even know that's with girls, at least socializing of like my socialization. I can't even imagine when it was introduced to like boys in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a hundred percent on board with that. I just love, I mean, the whole uh, concept that you've created of like outside in versus inside out. Um, I've talked, we talk a lot about, on this podcast about just um, growth and self-awareness and self-care in dating in general. And that because you are not in control of the outcome, the only thing you can do is work on fostering yourself. And, um, I think this is a hundred percent in line with that. And like, but you know, just the concept Mm -hmm. of like nurturing your, your, your inner sexual self and your sexual life as part of self-care. I'm like, I think it's, it's really lovely that you approach this topic in that way. Uh, well, I love that you're using the word nurturing. I think oftentimes we don't think of like nurturing and sex going together. We think sex has to be all about like passion and drive and like getting crazy or getting wild. But that space of nurturing is so essential, right? Like it's this like deep well of like self-compassion, yeah. self-care, listening that then helps us know like, okay, so what are the conditions in which I feel safe enough, connected enough and grounded enough to really let go and surrender and follow sensation. And all of that is what makes beautiful sexual experiences, right? If I can't really let down and listen to myself while also being connected to a partner, I'm not going to be able to enjoy 
a sexual experience. I'm going to be tense. I'm going to be self-conscious. I'm going to be self-critical. I'm going to feel like crap afterwards. So that idea of, um, of nurt- a nurturing relationship with ourselves really is so, I think, elemental, especially for people who are dating and trying to figure out where are my boundaries and like by what means would I know if I'm ready and what would I need to have in place in order to feel ready to open in that way. Yeah. And I mean, like, as opposed to someone needing to know what the quote unquote rules are. I mean, that's literally the outside world reinforcing how you feel (laughs) you're supposed to be behaving, Mm -hmm. um, which is nuts. Um, I want to talk about the ways the patriarchy um, has systematically affected, dare I say, oppressed uh, women's sexuality, if we if we may. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you feel that there are gender roles or assignments in the bedroom that we have subconsciously digested as a culture? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it starts from this first swipe. You know, if we're talking about people who are dating. Yeah. I think those that gender stuff is so deeply embedded, even around swiping. I think for LGBT, I mean, I think that there, when people are um, for LGBT folks, I think there are still ways in which like gender roles around like who's leading and who's following, like that stuff can come up for sure. But especially when a pairing is, is a male body and a female body, like all those dynamics about leading and following mm-hmm. um, what I call in the book agency and communion. So these are like fancy psychological words, agency just means leadership, like assertiveness, um, voice, empowerment, Mm -hmm. and then communion, which is like caregiving, nurturing, you know, making sure the other one is okay. And under patriarchy, it's like not too hard to figure out who's, you know, who's (laughs) allowed to be which of those ways. Mm. And that's, that is what is, you know, a good woman takes care of others. A good man is sure of himself and takes the lead. Like those are the messages that we internalize and they come right with us into the bedroom and really compromise both people's experiences, right? Because what we hear from men I think one of the problems is we assume we made these assumptions about male sexuality, that men are always ready and they always want it. And if you actually slow down and ask men about their sexual selves, what they will start to talk about is like really feeling like they need a lot of um, care and safety and trust in order to be able to unfold and relax. And that it feels like a, a ton of pressure to perform and understand things that are, you can't understand, you can't understand somebody else's orgasm on your own, right? You need feedback, you need dialogue. But even that idea runs counter to this notion that men should just know how to bring an orgasm to their female partner. It's their job. Yeah. Somehow just like absorb it from the ether, you know, considering (laughs) that we don't teach it in school, they're just supposed to like be born knowing how ridiculous. Um, but well, I want to talk like this brings up uh, something that you bring up in the book, and I love that you cover this. Um, in your book, you pose that women faking orgasms is an example of patriarchal conditioning. Can you talk more about that? Yes, and I also want to hear what you what your take on on that too, like whether that really resonates or not for you. Um, but yeah, I think that there's, you know, if women are very aware that men have been socialized to be, to have their self-esteem sort of like anchored or affirmed by her pleasure mm. that, that, so, so it becomes then like the orgasm, her orgasm becomes in this like kind of double twist. It becomes a way that she conveys to him 
you're a good boy. Like you did good. Like you are man enough. You are okay. Yeah. So it's like a double way it takes her out of her experience. I've heard men. I've, I mean, I've, I've dated guys. I've also heard male friends and I've just heard just like generally in culture, like there's a bravado around it. Like, Mm -hmm. man, I made her come three times, you know, and like high five. It's sort of like a, I got three home runs last night. I'm so proud of myself. (laughs) It's totally absurd because, you know, in all likelihood, she probably made herself come three times with uh-huh. his assistance. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. the sense of, I don't know why there's like a sense of accomplishment uh, or something you could pride yourself on, on someone else's pleasure. Does that make well, it's sense? It's a weird, it's another variation on the male provider role. And here what he's providing her with is pleasure, which as you're saying, pleasure has got to be co-constructed, right? All yeah. of this got to be. And I think, and so when women you know, the research shows that the vast majority of women fake orgasms and women who have sex with men are more likely to fake orgasms than women who have sex with women. And, um, and that it is, um, it, it's just so normalized and so like kind of ubiquitous and the conditions, like if we're not teaching women about their clit, you know, about their clits, if we're not, um, allowing women to like be hungry and greedy and um, asking for what they want in the bedroom. Like we're creating the conditions where she doesn't know her own body anyways. Mm-hmm. And she knows that he really wants her to come so that he feels okay about himself. And uh, so then she's just like, okay, this is the part I have to play. And then we get into painful situations where somebody, I just got a message from somebody on Instagram. She's 15 years into her marriage and she is now making the decision that she's going to talk to her husband about the fact she has never had an orgasm with him. Oh no. That's... Ugh. It's just tragic. tragic. Like, yeah. and what, and my frame to her was, I want you guys both to grieve together, right? Grieve the ways in which the patriarchy has really, really set you both on this course. Like does, this well, isn't. Did her husband know or was he, did she feel like she was, uh, for lack of a better word, like lying to him? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's DMing on Instagram. Sure, so I, really, I have so many questions. I'm like, are, tell my, me everything. My sense from the message was that it was that he, she would be telling him this for the first time. Oh my God. Oh, that so it's going heart. to, it's going to feel like a betrayal, right? It's going to feel like a betrayal. And it is yeah. in fact, a reflection that the culture has betrayed both of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why would you feel like you had to hide something so intimate from your most intimate partner? Sure. That's- and I think there, and I think some, sometimes the humor between women, between wives, especially is sort of like, you know, there's some humor about like, yep, I just had to take care of my husband or, mm-hmm. you know, there can be sort of a sense of like exasperation that it's also its own kind of trope, you know, it's its own kind it of like narrative that just keeps all of this stuff going. Yeah, you're right. No, you're absolutely right. Like, and certainly, uh, you know, we're all guilty. We're all part of it. I mean, to be fair, like, yes, this is a feminist podcast, but, um, it, like you really, uh, opened my eyes when I was thinking about how the patriarchy just, dis- just does a disservice to men as well. You know, this is, um, you know, we have this joke on my podcast that the male guest is the voice of the patriarchy and we don't let him talk to the end um, because in general, <laughs> they've been in positions of privilege. But truly, when we if we were being honest, the fact that that the a patriarchal society has set up men to be conditioned that his worth and his manliness and his value is is all in his ability to perform. And that word alone is so is so loaded. The idea mm-hmm. that you're like, I don't know, like you're performing a service to this 
person who is waiting for you. Like the whole thing is so, yeah. uh, it's, I don't know the right word. It's frustrating, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, right. Per- yeah. The whole, the word performance, I mean, it really is like, it's, you're wise to bring our attention to that word performance because performance and intimacy do not go well together. Like performance is about like doing and accomplishing and really beautiful sexual experiences are about being just kind of being together and a really kind of like meandering, open-ended, like mutual kind of way. It's more about like being rather than doing where mm-hmm. performance is like focusing on the doing. And I think that that's, I mean, I think it's where so much of um, just like fears of um, getting and keeping an erection, like all that stuff that just is like, has got to be really unpleasant to bring into a sexual experience, especially um, for men who are in the dating world, right? Like that just, um, um, that like feeling like pressure to perform and not humiliate yourself in front of a new partner is, um, has got to feel really bad. And it doesn't make it okay then that men are sometimes really, you know, shady and disrespectful around sexuality and dating. It doesn't make that okay, but I can under, I can see how the conditions are such that it sets men up to be really, really, really stressed out. Yeah. I never, and I never thought about that way. This is making me think of a situation and, um, anyone who's listened to the podcast so far, I'm sort of like open book about my dating life here on hashtag Ziggle. So, um, (laughs) if, if, uh, you don't want to listen to this part, if you're, too close with me or you're my family you can plug your ears (laughs) um but this is (laughs) this is making me think of a situation where i was uh having sex with a guy and we had been we met at um uh, a bar and so we'd been drinking you know and of course he was struggling a little bit to maintain his erection and um i was still having a great time but i do remember very vividly that he um he kind of like pulled out and then he he slapped himself like he was uh angry um. at his own body for not giving him what he wanted and at the time I was like yo buddy it's all good we're both a little drunk I'm still having a great time we could do other things but and that I've never seen I've never witnessed that um in bed before where a guy was frustrated at himself so much that he actually like he he literally slapped his own penis um yeah and and when I was uh reading your book and and even while we've been talking I keep thinking about this moment and how uh it's structured in a way that this poor guy has has his own expectations of how the night should go even though i had already released him from those expectations that's right that's right that is the that is the shittiest part about shame is that somebody like your your words like you were saying like literally don't worry about it like i have got three other ways i can have an orgasm like <laughs> <Yeah>. it, <laughs> and i was having will. a great time i was like whatever right Right. So, so you were trying to release him as you're saying, but what shame does is it can't come, like you couldn't affirm him out of his shame. Like that is something he has um, to do for himself. The the transformation out of shame starts with, it's got to be like anchored in his own ability to hold himself in warm regard, that he is more than just what his penis is doing in that moment. So that's really, I get why your words couldn't reach him, but it just sucks. I mean, it had, he had to feel so vulnerable and so lousy about that. And then it becomes, unfortunately, we, I mean, who knows where that story now lives inside of him, but mm-hmm. certainly it, it, it probably didn't like leave him feeling more whole as a human being. And that's really unfortunate. Yeah. I, I do feel like he needed to then like prove, prove himself for lack of better word, like the next morning. 
Um, mm-hmm. Like he left on a good place, like emotionally, you know what I mean? But I think mm-hmm. that probably infiltrated his intention and his emotion for like the next time we tried. Um, yeah. Which again, looking back on it, it's just sort of colored everything in a different way. Um, so your book covers a lot of interpersonal and relational advice for people who are in partnerships and who are having sexual relations with a particular person. Obviously, hashtag single is a dating podcast. So I love to talk about how this all directly relates to dating in the digital age. Your book has a chapter called, which I love, by the way, your grandma never swiped, right? Um, and in that chapter, you talk about how technology takes uh, perennial human questions like, do I matter to you? And am I worthy? And just cranks up the intensity. So can you tell us more about what you refer to as self-aware app usage and how we can practice self-care while online dating? Yes. So, um, you know, I, I approach this topic with a ton of both humility and compassion because it's brand new, right? It's brand new. It's it's not brand new to have an intermediary, right? It was like matchmakers and then it was personal ads. So the idea of like having an intermediary to help people connect with each other isn't new, but it's really, really different to have like the village matchmaker helping you find somebody than it is to have an app on your phone where you can be swiping, you know, wherever, whenever. And, um, two of the things that it does, one is, um, in our intimate relationships, we, when it comes to love and dating, whether it's like marriage or a first date, we are at risk of getting really, really focused on the other person and like how they're showing up and what they're bringing to the table. Um, I'm at risk even like I'm 22 years into my marriage and it's easier for me to talk about ways that my husband is a pain in the ass oh, totally. than it is to talk about ways in which I get triggered by what he does because of my stuff. Right. So that's a more courageous approach to relationship is to be like, why am I troubled by that? Or what is the dance that's happening between us versus just focusing on the other person? Mm -hmm. And with dating apps, like literally the nature of a dating app is that we're swiping to find another person. So the focus really is on like, what is that person bringing to me? Yes. Versus a more relational. It's a very consumer approach versus like a more relational approach. So a big part of self-aware dating is just using our apps like knowing that our apps are nothing more than a way of getting from point A to point B and point B sitting down across a beer or going for a walk together, whatever, like that's where the relationship starts because that's the first time that we are really like mutual, um, having a back and forth conversation rather than like sort of scripting out our answers and, you know, running it by our friends Mm -hmm. before we send it, all that kind of stuff. So just making sure that you're kind of like connected with yourself while you're <laughs> looking for another person, I guess. Totally. Right. And then, and, um, in using it in a mindful way, like I really encourage people to just have, not be swiping when they're, you know, waiting in line at Starbucks or, um, even like sometimes with friends, like, I think it's really helpful to have just a quiet space when you're doing this so that you can be, um, mindful and kind of treat it with, a with, because it's, because it is about, even if you're only looking for a hookup, it is still about the body and sexuality and, you know, relationship. It's nice to really treat it with a bit of sacredness and care. Um, not because the other person like quote unquote deserves it, but because we deserve it. We deserve Mm -hmm. to handle our relational lives with a bit of sacredness and care. And so having a ritual around it, like only doing it in the evening, you know, those kinds of practices can help us just feel like we are 
mindful. And how can we uh, take care of our sexy, as you like to refer to it, when we are actively going on the date and or taking the date to the next level? If you get my drift. One thing is noticing where your attention is on the date. And um, I think sometimes on a date, it's like, how is this person receiving me? Like, are they liking me or um, what are they thinking of me? And so just noticing if that's the focus, like also staying in touch with like, how am I feeling and how's my energy and am I kind of like leaning in and present um, to focusing in on, on ourselves. That's one thing. Yeah. Um, and then as we were saying before that somebody, the, you know, the other person may be more ready for intimacy than we are or less ready than intimacy than we are, but that it really, we have to check in with ourselves. So I think especially for someone who's been socialized as a woman who's dating a man, it may be like her only ability is to be like the goalkeeper, you know, like saying, not yet, not yet. Okay. Now, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's such a position of like reactivity versus being more proactive and really feeling like, okay, I have some voice around when I feel like I'm ready and how would I know that I'm ready to, to add in the layer of like physical sexual intimacy? Well, there's an assumption. And I I think honestly, this happens on both ends of the spectrum and uh, across genders and across sexualities, um, that some apps, shall we just say, Tinder, Grindr, are hookup apps, like the apps. They exist so that you can find someone to hook up or have sex with. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so just being clear, um, the, thing that I w- the thing that I think is problematic is when there's like sort of mixed agendas, right? I think if, if somebody feels like I have to act as if all I want is a hookup and then hope that it will become something else, right. that's a kind of, that's a kind of self-abandonment. Yeah. You know, um, and I it's think- a way of saying this is all I can hope for. The best I can hope for is to um, hook up and hope that it will become something more. That's, that narrative takes us out of our own kind of integrity. I'm not saying, I'm not saying anything about whether hookups themselves are good, bad, right, wrong. What I, what I struggle with is when somebody is offering a hookup in the hopes it will become something else that I feel like is, is problematic only just in terms of my, of one's relationship with one sexy. So you're like, as long as people are both on board with like, I want to do this just for a physical connection right now, then you don't you don't feel like there's any detriment to like going online to find someone for lack of better phrasing to have sex with for like an end reason for an end result. Right. I don't I mean, I don't I really try to be careful about like getting into people's like shoulds and shouldn'ts. So I have zero problem with people, you know, opting for non-relationship sex. I think it can like sometimes serve really great purposes in our lives. The only thing I would encourage is just to, for people to track how they're feeling before, during mm, and after. Yeah, yeah. And if after they feel lousy, then that's it doesn't mean it was a mistake, but it just means I call it in the book an FGL, like a fucking growth opportunity. Like, <laughs> oh, shoot, I thought I would really enjoy a hookup and I completely didn't enjoy it. So, okay, what do you want to learn from it? And where do you go from here? So it's not about shame or beating yourself up, but it is about then like using that as data. So what does that mean? What is that telling me about how my, how my sexy flows, what my sexy wants? Yeah. I think, well, I just think there's like a 
miscommunication. I mean, that's what dating apps all are. Um, but I have found when I've been using dating apps that um, I'm looking for a relationship. I might even say I'm looking for a relationship. And then I'll go on the date and realize, oh, no, this guy's just meeting me because he's attracted to me and doesn't want the other thing. So, you know, hmm. I, I, I'm 100% on board with like checking in with yourself and being like, no. But I, I think that these dating apps are sort of rife with miscommunication where and this is a huge generalization, but really that men are using the apps to find sexual encounters and women are using the apps to find dating partners. Hmm. Have you experienced Mm -hmm. that at all with any of your clients or from stories that you're hearing? I do think so. Um, It's interesting. I feel like I hear the story the other way with um, women who are in who are sort of in like the single again crowd, you know, like sort of 40 and over women feeling like um, they go on a first date and the, you know, the guy is like, I really think that we should be boyfriend and girlfriend, like really like on like upon initial meeting. So there might be women are like, no, I just want to like make out a little bit. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's so interesting. 20 years of like taking care of a man. I'm not really. (laughs) (laughs) I have to. Let me say, to be fair, like I have not interviewed anybody or had conversations any, on the podcast with anyone that's like coming out of a divorce. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're out there and you want to be on the podcast, hit me Seriously, up. Seriously, right? I think that, yes, I think there are really interesting stories of what happens to daters in their 40s and 50s and how to kind of navigate those additional layers of, um, one additional layer is just that the last time somebody, you know, someone was 45, the last time they were single, there was no such thing as Tinder, right? So right. there is like a, a growing edge that this is not the technology you grew up with, but it is now the technology that you may be using um, to find a partner. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I th- and what you were talking about earlier really resonated with me too, because um, for better, for worse, I have no idea where this, this idea or message got implanted in my brain, certainly not from my family or the way I was raised, but when I was in college, my college in, in particular was considered to be one of the top five party schools in the nation. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I thought that was cool. My parents did not. Um, and it was a huge hookup culture. Like it was widely accepted across the board that people did not date or get into relationships at my school. And it was something that you just sort of accepted. And even though I wanted to be in a relationship, I felt like I should, and I, I realize I'm using that word, but I should, mm-hmm. um, do ha- like engage in what you refer to as this low accountability hookup culture in order to get the thing that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like this, just reading this book is just like brought those feelings back up. I, I, I have no idea aside from like the patriarchy where those ideas came from and where they were implanted in my brain and why I thought they were okay. But I do remember engaging in that philosophy for a very long time. Well, it's, it is, I mean, that's, it's, that approach is endemic on college campuses. That whole idea of hookup culture just does sort of infiltrate college campuses, even though surveys like research done with college students show that nobody loves it. Nobody's really like saying what I adore most of anything is having five beers and then uh, <laughs> hooking up with somebody in like a really messy, <laughs> like and no then, one is and saying, then avoiding eye contact for the rest of the yeah, time you're at school. That's right. That's right. No one's saying like, that's my path to spiritual you know, fulfillment, <laughs> but everybody sort of, it feels Engages like I mean, it. It, yeah. when, when we are, when it comes to sexuality, there's such a craving to be normal, to fit in, to not rock the boat, to belong. Um, so I think there's a way that people participate, even if it doesn't feel good, because it feels like this is just what I should 
like. So that's how I think how it kind of perpetuates, even though if you pull any one person aside, there are very few people who are like, yes, I'm all in on this. Yeah. There are some, but there, most people are kind of like, no, I actually really prefer um, sex that's a bit more sober, that's with somebody I really know and trust and connect with. And, but it kind of does keep, keep perpetuating. Yeah. I mean, I know our culture is a fraught history with sex and with dealing with sex just in general, but on a more positive note, um, what do you think has been the greatest cultural or societal breakthrough in the last 20 years in this arena? It's an exciting, I mean, it really is an exciting time to be having these conversations because, um, first of all, we have a, a whole science of female sexuality that we didn't have 20 years ago. The, the researcher who wrote the foreword to Taking Sexy Back, Dr. Lori Brado, is on the cutting edge of understanding women's sexuality. And it's this whole, there just were these, there were questions that nobody was asking for a very long time. Mm-hmm. You know, there were assumptions about sex that kept us from asking questions about sex, especially women's sexuality. And so it's fascinating. I think we have just more language, more constructs, more ways to talk. We have diagrams, right? So like the clitoris, back to the clitoris for a moment. Oh my God, that blew my mind. Yeah. We didn't even have a full diagram of the clitoris until very, very recently. So how the hell are you going to try to understand? Did I remember that right? 2000. Yeah. uh Until 2000? Uh-huh. That's insane. Uh, maybe, no, it might have been 98. Okay. I think you're right, 98. Yeah, I remember that because I graduated from high school in 98. So I was like, oh my God, I was a fully formed sexual human being. And then there was a diagram of the clitoris. You know right. what I mean? It's just, it's just ridiculous. And it's like, okay, so we, when you look at it that way, we are at the, just the brand new beginning of understanding what's possible for women. And it's exciting because it means, you know, if our story has been that sex is a duty that a woman performs for a man, um, you know, in exchange for the care she gets from a man, like the sort of the nature of sex in a patriarchy, if we don't have to live by that anymore, okay, then what is possible? And what we know is that when couples can enjoy their lovemaking, it really helps them um, navigate. Like it puts like it puts a cushion under them to then navigate the frustrations of um, that are just inherent in loving and being loved. So if we can start to tap into sex as a resource and we can reimagine what's possible, then now sex becomes like this sort of resource that helps individuals feel whole on the inside and that helps couples um, take care of each other and love each other and feel close to each other. So that's, that really gives me hope. Yeah. And also just um, kind of permission giving, I guess, Mm. in the way that we're um, trying to give men permission to be vulnerable and to not have to fulfill that really patriarchal role of, you know, performing in the bedroom or providing and also the permission for women to use their voice and reclaim their bodies as their own. Um, just like letting people know that that's okay. I think is, is sort of groundbreaking too. Yes. Yes. I, I agree. And I think when I think about the couples I work with in my office, my hetero, the heterosexual couples I work with in my office, their marriages look little to nothing like their parents' marriages in terms of roles and division of labor. So those old paradigms of, you know, he earns the money and she takes care of the household. Like those things are so, they've been so shattered and that can feel really destabilizing for couples. Like who are we to each other? But what I love is 
is when you fill in with like this creativity and this possibility and mutuality, then the, the relationships they create are stronger because they're built on values and principles that really work for these two people. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Um, to close out the episode, I would love to hear from you. What are some shifts that modern women need to make? And I think specifically in terms of single women, um, so, uh, shifts that modern women need to make or, or can make in order to reclaim their sexuality. Mm, well, one, I think it's so important is noticing how we talk to ourselves and to our friends about our bodies. Like, I think that the, um, just kind of continuing to heal, body image shame. And, um, you know, I, I, it breaks my heart when I hear somebody say like, I'm going to start dating when I lose five pounds or, um, I can't have sex because I need to whatever, you know, tone up some more. Like, I think it's just so normal for women to be at war with their bodies. And so whatever we can do to continue to infuse a sense of like self-compassion and celebration of our bodies exactly as they are, like that's, um, that's so foundational, like, um, to feel like, to feel like I celebrate the skin that I live in. I celebrate my body as it is then, you know, exercise and fitness and healthy foods become a way of like a kind of celebration and a reflection of like gratitude yeah. rather than like a punishing cycle of I'm not okay as I am because that it's, it's oftentimes, I mean, I think about my own journey with my body. My, my doctor put me on a diet when I was eight years old. So I don't oh, know myself no. without this message that my body isn't okay as it is. And so I know that it will be my forever work, but I also know that the more I practice gentleness around my body, the more I can, um, enjoy connection with my husband and the more fully I show up for, you know, all the parts of my life. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's so interwoven in how we view ourselves um, as worthy as well. We're talking about sort of reclaiming this value system that uh, our sexuality is our own, our bad, our bodies are beautiful, and that this is all part of this marvelous journey of figuring out what what gives us pleasure. I mean, absolutely, that's so intertwined in all of that stuff. So, I hear you on that. Um, and, uh, I, I promise <laughs> that I will, I, I recognize when reading your book, there were things that were red flags for me. I was like, I definitely am bad at that, or I do that, or I need to stop doing that as well. So, um, you know, again, taking the should out of it, I just, I'm very grateful that you wrote this book in the first place, that someone is out there, uh, approaching women's sexuality from as we talked about sort of an inside out view of love, self-care, reclamation, rewriting of history. I love all that so much. So um, mm. thank you so much for all that you do and continue to do and what you have brought to the world with your beautiful writing. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I think it's just, as we were saying before, I think that just when we bring these conversations into um, a more public space, it just helps all of us, you know, identify, oh, yeah, I got some shame there. And then that's how we move away from it towards something that feels um, that feels more authentic. So thank you for making the space. Absolutely. Um, and if you want to uh, continue to have conversations with Dr. Solomon, uh, you can join her newsletter. You can follow her Instagram. 
Instagram. I'm going to put all links to that um, in the description of this podcast. I hope you guys go out and buy Dr. Solomon's book. It's really incredible. And it's it's like nothing I've read before um, for single people, for people who are in couples. Um, it's, it's really revolutionary. Um, and I will put the link to that book as well in the podcast comments. So thank you again, Dr. Solomon. Um, it has been my pleasure to have you here as a guest. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> to you and to everyone who's listening. Uh, We will catch you next time on Hashtag Single. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.